I think this is to the point about a, um, starting a company is just a hugely inefficient endeavor. This is just not an efficient way to to iterate on something. It is an extremely efficient way to figure out what it is you should be building. So I think what was much more expensive for us was was building what we thought made sense and then finding out that it actually wasn't the right thing to build. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward. Silence. Silences. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with Jonathan Anderson. He's the CEO and co-founder of CanDo, that's C-A-N-D-U. They have just launched on Monday, which is very exciting, after a year of daily user interviews. So we want to talk about the process that that got Jonathan and team from sort of an idea to a launched product. It's the first editor ever for your SaaS app. So Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. And we've got JH here too. And JH as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm fascinated by the, the interview a day. So I'm curious to see how, uh, how you pulled that off. Yeah, so we, it actually didn't start that way. We didn't plan on on doing an interview a day, but it ended up being by far the best way for us to gather information and then kind of adapt the product. So it just ended up being, we learned so much more in these interviews than we would otherwise. So I spend, have spent most of my time sourcing good interviews, running them, and then working with our designer and our engineers to, to put those ideas into practice into our app. How literal are we talking? Like literally every day you were, you were talking to somebody or like most days? We probably do four or five interviews a week. They started in an hour. We shortened them to 30 to 45 minutes. But yeah, no, we, uh, um, we're very serious about the amount of user research we do. Yeah, it's super impressive. So you said that you you know didn't start out with this idea of, right? Because research is a means to an end, although we do like mm-hmm. sort of doing it as a habit. Mm-hmm. So how did you get to that place where it became this thing that you were doing that was valuable, this daily habit? Actually, I love this question. We, I think when you, first of all, starting a company is probably the least efficient thing you can do. <laughs> Literally, you're trying to, <laughs> to, you know, take a, take an idea and bring it to market. And the problem with that is that the idea is always versus wrong. You just don't know why it's wrong yet. And so <laughs> for us, it was really, the reason we started doing more and more user interviews was because our first MVPs ended up, the ones that we had intuition about, the ones that we believed were correct, the ones that we built just ended up not being wanted by other people. So hmm. we had to flip that on its head and say, okay, what do people actually want? Well, the best way to do that is to actually just ask them. So Great. And so what what you, you said to your initial MVPs, was the sort of essence of the idea of the company the same all throughout? Or where did you start and where did you end up in, you know, uh, simple terms? Yeah. So my background's in, in like the, in the SaaS world and especially like on the B2B side, uh, business to business. And I love software adoption. I love the idea of helping people um, just do better at their work by using the tools that are actually useful to them. And so we really came in with like, what's the problem we want to solve? The that's a, I think it's a great starting frame for starting a company, but you have to iterate through a lot of ways of solving that problem before you land on one that you actually believe in. So, Yeah. And so the problem that can do is solving is the problem that we are solving is that we help you change the user interface to match your users needs so we're really working on how do you make b2b software usable by everybody our mission is to leave no customer behind 
And it's really this idea that today applications are kind of one size fits most. Um, they do tons of things, lots of features. But the problem with that is that there's lots of users who look at them who have really different need sets. You know, user one might have nothing, nothing in common with user two. And so really what we do is we try to actually change the interface itself to match the, to match the, what the user is actually here to do. Cool. Cool. And like how, just practically like day to day, like, would you talk to somebody on Monday, learn some things, iterate on that feedback? And then in the conversation on Tuesday, you know, it's a little different or like, would you do a couple in a row before you incorporated stuff? Like how, how real time and continuous was like the adjustments you were making between these conversations? Yeah, so we are blessed with having a really fantastic, I'd say, squad of folks um, who do these interviews. So it's basically a small team, but really I give credit to our product designer. And the way it would actually work is we would sort of show mock-ups. We would talk to users about those mock-ups and then split the... We can talk more about how to structure those interviews, but effectively you move through a series of designs within about a week. So you do about um, four or five interviews on that set of mock-ups before sort of iterating to the next set. Gotcha, gotcha. And was it just, it was just easier for you all scheduling wise to, you know, do the hour a day basically, instead of doing like, you know, one day with four hours or five hours? Like, I, I guess I'm just geeking out on like the, the process here, because um, obviously, we're big fans of like continuous and frequent interviewing. But I feel like the way we often hear it from folks or teams is kind of like the weekly batch of like Tuesdays are our, our user, you know, day, and we go out and talk to people. And then we process and iterate. And next Tuesday, we do it again. So the daily thing is just for me is like a real trip and I'm uh, just super curious about it. I think that actually has more to do with stamina than anything else. I, I don't know about you. I, I find if I do more than three interviews in a day, I'm just exhausted and you just get less curious about what the users, the uh, users are saying. So there's actually something really nice about having a set period. You know, we always do ours between like nine and 11 o'clock in the morning where you can actually talk to a user about what they, what they're interested in. And of course it's going to end up looking lumpy or life is not. Uh, a perfectly scheduled thing, especially when you're dependent on other people who are busy and are doing great work. But, but yeah, we found that we had to cap it at, at three. Otherwise, we asked. We just yeah, we didn't care about the answers enough. I think. I love that. I think it's such an undervalued aspect of being effective at work is you know playing to your strengths and the reality of you know does this plan actually hold up if I actually do it? Do I actually want to do a full day of interviews every week or? you know, once a month or once a sprint or whatever it is, which might be great for some people on some teams, but there's no, you know, rule that says that's what you have to do, right? Yeah. And I'm also just not sure if I'm extroverted enough or, you know, have the, <laughs> have the willpower to go, go through them also. Um, for us, it was just a lot easier to, to break them up. So. Yeah, no, it, it seems really smart. I think after, you know, the sprint methodology kind of took off and there's the, it ends with the user testing day. I think people really got into the the batched of like, this is our day for testing. And there's a lot of merits to it. I think it's a really cool idea in a lot of ways, but I don't think people explore it from the other side of like, well, what are the downsides of doing all these conversations in one day? So it's really interesting to hear about the, those kind of pieces you're bringing up of, yeah, you know, you get burned out. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't talk to five people back to back to back to back. And then also it's a lot to process and everything that comes out of that. Did you find it was easier to to deal with the outputs of each conversation on like a smaller batch size? Yeah. And I actually, I feel like I am having trouble, a little trouble with the question because for us, so we work in a scrum methodology, we're, we're, we're agile as well, but the, it's, I actually think of user and in, user interviews as an input to, to making progress and iterative progress, not as a, Hey, we have this great demo. Let me show off what we have. We do that as well. That's a, that's a great fun Friday activity where we show off what we've made, but the interview itself is actually about um, these iterative designs that are changing day to day. Mm -hmm. So, it's, it's, I think we think of it more as an input than an output. 
when you say day to day, um, just back to that. So you're doing, you know, well, first of all, okay. So let's talk about the the process. You said you'd tell us a little bit more about how you structure the interviews. Mm-hmm. So you have some sort of mock-up or a prototype or something that you're mm-hmm. talking to people about. Tell us more about like what's happening in those interviews. Yeah. So the interviews are, are pretty, we've gotten pretty specific about them. There's a pattern. So the way it works is we have someone who's going to lead the interview and they are going to show the mock-up as well as uh, somebody taking notes and then somebody to help coordinate and schedule and fill in, like basically just be like a, a helper for the interviewee. And we basically have one question, which we always ask, which is, what would you expect? And that's really because we're we're basically trying to be as neutral as possible in the interview process. And then really what we're looking for is the reaction. So we split up our the feedback that's given into, you know, happy moments or things, questions or concerns or you know, opportunities for, for, for new growth or even pain points. But the question itself is supposed to be very neutral. What we're really looking for is the reaction the interviewee has to what we've made. So you show them the thing and mm-hmm. then what, what do you expect would happen? What would this do? Yes. Uh, or like, hey, where would you click first? Great. Mm-hmm. Okay. If I were to click that button, what would be the next screen you would see? And then you'd click it and you'd say, then you'd hear the reaction about saying, hey, oh, great. Or, oh, shit, this is what I want. <laughs> uh, and that's how you basically um, suck out all of those unfiltered reactions, which I have to admit, as a research subject, uh, is not super fun because you're constantly feeling like you're being tricked. Mm-hmm. So I think there's like a, <laughs> it's not fun to, to have to like uncover our, our biases, but but that, that those sort of unfiltered reactions are, I think, what's so powerful about um, running a good user interview. Yeah, absolutely. And who from the team was in these sessions? Is it, is it the whole squad that you referenced or a subset? Yeah. So the way it works is that we have our, our designer um, usually leads them, the person who's creating the designs. And then we have a designated note taker who's usually on the customer team. And then my co-founder and I are often in the group as well to listen in. And then we actually decided to open it up to the whole team that they're allowed to, everyone on the engineering and product side can listen in um, as sort of a, a lurker on the line. So that's how we run it. <laughs> How big is your company? How many folks are there all together? Uh, we're a team of eight. Cool. That's about where I got <laughs> something like that. <laughs> but you have all these departments. I'm like, wow, this could be really a lot of people. Okay, so you got about eight people and everybody's sort of participating, you know, uh, to a different level from time to time. Yeah. So like if they're working on the editor, for example, they might join those interviews. Um, if we're focused on maybe segmentation, maybe the, the data side, um, our hmm. product engineers might come in for that. Yeah. And these are all remote interviews or in person or both? Yeah, we've we've tried blended as well. So I should say that our company is remote. Uh, my co-founder is in London, along with most of our engineering team. We also have uh, folks in Sao Paulo, um, in Sevilla, Spain, and in San Francisco. I'm, I'm based in LA. So yes, we do a lot of remote stuff. I actually have found that blended interviews where you have some people in the room, some people out are really hard to run. Mm-hmm. I've also found that it, we really need one research subject at a time. So we have some rules that uh, it's really helpful to have a video interview. If you're going to be all remote, everyone be remote. And and yeah, only one uh, person can be sort of uh, as the interviewee. So say you, you, you pick a part of your flow, right? And you're mm-hmm. talking to people every day about it. You're making it better. You're improving it. Mm-hmm. That's great, right? I think I always feel in product that's hard is it never really feels like you're done. Like something always could be better. And I imagine at some point, you start to hit a little bit of diminishing returns where you've kind of gotten over that 80-20 hump. You've made mm-hmm. a lot of the obvious improvements and the really important stuff that came out in the early conversations. How do you know when like maybe that part of the app or that workflow is good enough and you need to like pivot and start getting feedback on a different part of the experience? Like it just feels like once you're pulling on a thread and you keep talking to people and they keep pointing out some other small thing, 
you could like stay on it forever. Like how did, how did you navigate that aspect? Yeah, I think this is the, this is the promise of Scrum, right? You say, particularly for a new app, you have so many different aspects that have to be built. And so for us, we just have these pull-up points that are, you know, every week or every two weeks. And I'll really credit my co-founder who um, was a product manager at TransferWise and at Coursera to sort of do the marching orders on the ship. Because the truth is that, uh, yeah, to your point, you, you definitely hit diminishing returns. It's incredibly obvious when UX does not work correctly. It's a little bit less obvious when UI could be improved. But I think it's unless there's like a glaring reason why you should move on, you should really think about the milestones. It's like, okay, we're going to tackle this the, this flow of screens within this week, and then we'll move on to the next set. Yeah, fixed fixed time variable scope. We've been we've been driving on that. <laughs> I'm not trying to, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel over here. We're just trying to you know, <laughs> stay on the track, you know. So right, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. totally cool. Okay, so back to these these artifact mock-up things that you're showing. Are these all kind of the same level of fidelity? Do you like to do, are they interactive prototypes and vision, balsamic mock-ups, mm-hmm. uh, pen and paper drawings? Like what are, what are we showing people? Yeah, this, <laughs> this, we've been through so many different iterations of this. So I guess concretely, when we think about artifacts, we really use a lot of Figma. There's a mm-hmm. couple of limitations with Figma's prototyping tool uh, in that you can't have an endless amount of things to, to test, but it's very fast to create. So it mm-hmm. makes it very easy to, to throw something together. And also throw something together does not is not the right language for the amount of work that goes into creating low fidelity designs. So uh, <laughs> let's give credit where credit's due. But yeah, we found that, that having something to look at is super powerful for user interview. It can be as simple as, you know, you drawing boxes on top of a Figma file with Zoom. Mm-hmm. Like that's totally fine. But yeah, having some sort of visual representation is very useful. I will say that there's a completely separate type of user interview, which is the not how to build this, but should we build this or what should we build? And those are actually really, those are actually, I think, would argue much harder conversations to have. And those are mostly done verbally with ideas, not so much with with prototyping. So. Right. And so how do you know when you're planning out your different sprints and cycles, whatever you call them, how far ahead do you know like what you're building versus like, hold the phone, we need to do some generative stuff and figure out what to do next. Do you have a cadence of that or do you sort of get through the known unknowns and then kind of reset? Like how does that work in this year of getting to launch? I think the, the way I think I feel like this we think about this is often, you know, you think about via feature, you know, okay, we want to mm-hmm. figure out mm-hmm. some way to group users. How are we going to do that? What are the right, you know, is it via file? Is it is it via you know user traits? Like, what's the right way to you know approach the problem? The the reality is actually much more simple. When you're early on in a product's life cycle, you're doing a lot more of the generative stuff, and then the closer you get to launch, the more concrete you get. So it's it's I think it's while I'd like to think that it was would be a, fe- a feature, the reality is that it's been very much driven by our by our launch schedule. <laughs> so, yeah, gotcha. cool. All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun is doing user research, and we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more, so we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it, so get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review please i feel like there's gonna be a lot of people like nodding their heads and being like this sounds amazing i would love to talk to a user you know every day or most days 
but you're you're on you know an early team and like sourcing all these people and scheduling and planning for the calls and processing what you learned for inputs into the next work like there's a lot of cost there both like in time and you know in dollars and, and other aspects mm -hmm. of it like how did you all decide to make this a priority was it just something from the start that was like this is important and we're doing it or was it like a thoughtful choice or like how did it actually become like you know get sign off in, in that sense well, so I guess I, I sign off on my own time, so that, <laughs> that makes sure, the sure. process easy, easier. But yeah, I mean, this is, I think this is to the point about a, um, starting a company is just a hugely inefficient endeavor. This is just not an efficient way to to iterate on something. It is an extremely efficient way to figure out what it is you should be building. So I think what was much more expensive for us was was building what we thought made sense and then finding out that it actually wasn't the right thing to build. Um, software has gotten so cheap, but it's still expensive for a team, especially with the opportunity cost of what you could be building. So it was a super deliberate choice after the third MVP we built. It turned out not to be that useful. We put it like that. And I think the, the key thing was that we built out, uh, I think a lot of startups do this, but we built out a design partner program, which was basically a series of folks who give really good feedback, who are currently working on the problem that we're trying to solve, who wanted to be part of this product you know, this new product process. Um, and so for them, it was really an opportunity to, to sort of come in and join an, an early stage team. And then they really became full-time partners for us. Um, and so the way the actual scheduling would work was that we would talk to them about once a month. And so we had a group of, you know, 10 or so companies who we had on retainer basically. And then we complemented those with, with new folks throughout. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah. The, the partner piece seems really helpful in terms of how to do something like this, because you at least have a group that you can go back to consistently. And uh, you mentioned keeping them on retainer. Like, was there an actual like financial relationship with those people or those companies or were they just so invested in this problem space that they were happy to help? Yeah, no, I think, no, there wasn't a financial relationship. This was purely a, you know, please come help us. <laughs> we sure. need your help. But I think to your, to that point, like, I think there's something really, really, really fun um, seeing a product evolve over time and seeing how your input, even if it's indirect, uh, is causing these sort of changes. So I think people got very invested in sort of the outcome um, as we move toward launch. Cool. It seems like a good market signal too, right? Of like, this problem for me is so acute, I'm willing to spend some of my time to help with this potential solution to it. That that feels like a meaningful signal that like you're, you're solving something that really needs to be solved. Oh, I feel like you're, uh, I wish I, you, I wish I could agree with you, but I have to actually strongly disagree. I, ah, take. <laughs> yeah. So I think that this is actually the, biggest problem that we face, which is that people want to be helpful. They love, like, you know, they, they want to be agreeable. They want to, they want to help out folks they think are smart and interesting and uh, fun to talk to. Uh, and so they tend to be like, oh yeah, I would be, you know, happy to sort of join this endeavor, trying to figure out what would actually be valued to, valuable to them in their jobs. That took a lot longer than getting someone to agree to an initial interview and then agree to the next interview. So I think that that was actually a, a, a big insight for us was, was how do you get past the, hey, let me be as helpful as possible to, oh, yeah, wait, I, this is what I need. That's a, that's a big, big jump. And also to what are you willing to pay for, right? The down yeah, the line. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, the willingness to pay, I could, I could definitely track. I guess just, you know, this is my own bias, right? But like, I wouldn't spend time on something if I didn't care about it. Like, I, I would want to be helpful, but I'd also be like, hey, like, I'm busy. I'm not, you know, so that's counterintuitive. Yeah, that's cool. True. That's an interesting insight. So just to back up, just to repeat what you said. So basically you found these like 10 or so companies who were these ongoing partners in terms of delivering interviewees to you? 
actually, no, sorry, the, just to quickly clarify, it was the, uh, the way the design partner program worked is we would find a company who was, who specifically was in the space that we were looking for, but then it really came down to finding the person who had specifically in our case worked on activation or user onboarding and then actually working with them directly. And so it's really a personal commitment, not a company commitment. And that's, that was super valuable for us. And then also, because it's not like I, the whole company knows what we're working on. It's, it's much easier if, you know, specific, if Sarah knows exactly what we worked on one month ago, and then can sort of reflect on the changes to the product and then give more candid feedback. Yeah. Got it. So you sort of build up your own panel that happened to be comprised of representatives from 10 or so companies and would talk to each of those people like once a month or so. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, That's interesting. How did you get at, did once a month feel like, I don't know, we, you know, we talked to people in terms of how often is too often to hit up the same person in terms Mm -hmm. of annoying them or in terms of they get too familiar with what you're building and then their, you know, feedback isn't as valid versus the benefits of what you're talking about. There is that longitudinal and being invested. How did you kind of come up with the right amount of, of, you know, time to talk to each of these people. Yeah. I think there's also just the, the more fundamental problem. Like, is it a busy time for them? You know, are they on maternity leave or are they, is it just like they, you know, picked up a new project and, and are running with it? So, um, you know, over the course of this year, we've had people switch jobs. We've had people, you know, have kids. We've had people, you know, come in and out for all kinds of reasons. So I think for us, it was more around finding out who gives good feedback because, in theory, I think everyone should be able to, but it really takes someone who's like really engaged with a problem to give the best feedback and then trying to sort of fit them into this framework and, and beg and plead for their for their insights. So. If, you know, for I'm an early stage team, there's a couple of us, we are, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to figure out this idea. Do you have like, what would like your playbook be if, if I wanted to get this thing set up and, and do it ourselves? Like what would be like the best lessons learned and, and recommendations you'd have from doing it yourself? Yeah, (laughs) I guess it's only through experience of doing it wrong. I I really didn't know how to do a user interview. I would get too excited about what I was talking about, which is a super important quality in anyone starting um, any kind of thing, because you need to inspire people. You need to um, get people excited about this vision that you're painting for the world. That is completely at odds with building something that's actually valuable. (laughs) So uh, you kind of need both that optimism, but also the, the realism of, um, okay, actually, okay, if you would use it, why would you use it? What? Okay, how long would it take you to use it? What, why wouldn't you be able to use it? I think for me, it was it was really working with my co-founder, Michele, who had done product before that was very helpful. Uh, and then also just, you know, things like reading the mom test, a uh, great book about how to uh, get past the, the, the bias to agree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've heard that before. That's really hard for founders to turn off the selling instincts because they're always just in the mode of, you know, selling the vision and trying to be, to your point, like inspirational. So it's a, it's a good reminder that in this context, that's actually not the right mode to be in. Yeah. And I've sold, I've sold in so many situations that are just inappropriate to sell in, which <laughs> is the, which is the like, which is the antithesis of, I think of, of, of good user research stuff. So. Yeah. Got to replace always be closing with always be learning or something like that. Yeah. And that is a model that we, that we live by. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, you talked about, you know, kind of getting uh, better at figuring out this ideal profile of your participants in terms mm-hmm. of people who are really engaged in the problem space. Mm-hmm. I know that's something that our listeners 
are thinking about when they're trying to find, especially in B2B, right, participants mm-hmm. that are going to be good and what does that look like and how do you screen for that? Did you learn anything over the months of being able to sort of predict better over time who's going to end up being a better participant? Are there any like sort of intangibles or things you wouldn't have thought of to look for when you first got started? I mean, I don't know if this is a secret or not, but by far the easiest way to know that is to do a user interview and look at the how long mm. the notes are. <laughs> it just mm. just quantity is actually quite good right. in terms of what we found, even more so than quality. I will say that one thing that we do look for is someone who's used tools uh, to solve the problem is actually quite helpful, um, particularly if mm-hmm. they've used a set of them already. And then if particularly if they've been in sort of the same type of role at multiple companies is also quite helpful. You're really looking for the person who's like worn many hats is very helpful, we found. Right. And is that because people who have sort of SaaS geekery, you know, in their blood are going to be better customers for you or they're just better at talking about software or why was that um, important? I think. Yeah, I think, and it's not specific to they have to have worked in SaaS. It's more that they've had, that they've tried to solve this problem in different environments, I think is the more important problem to uh, think to look for, uh, because then they can relate ideas and having, I think, some day-to-day experience, like, okay, not how would I solve this, but how have I solved this is makes the biggest difference. Right. When you were, you said you uh, didn't know how to do a user interview in the beginning and you're kind of always, you know, selling and too enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you have to learn the, you know, don't ask hypotheticals or the, what other, what other mistakes did you sort of learn by doing in the beginning? I have made every mistake possible. <laughs> I mean, even like little things, like when someone wants to click a button, immediately clicking the button, as opposed to asking, okay, what would be the next screen that would come up? It's a really mm-hmm. unintuitive question. It's so obvious. You just click the click the goddamn button. Sorry, um, <laughs> but the, uh, that is not, that is not how it works. That's not, right. that's not what you're looking for. Yeah, my co-founder had a lot of hard conversations with me around chilling out and then actually observing him <laughs> lead interviews, uh, being the note taker for for a lot of the intro ones before I was comfortable um, doing it myself. Uh-huh. Was he chill? Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Very neutral. <laughs> Extremely neutral. neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Oh, this is. Neutral. This conversation is really reminding me, like, you know, a year, year and a half ago when we were building uh, a new workflow and kind of solution in our product uh, for scheduling stuff with your own user base, we kind of did a very similar thing of uh, we were calling them like design partners and, and found people mm-hmm. who were like the right profile. And, and we'd go back to that same group with some frequency. And it was super helpful. And all the stuff you're saying is just like bringing back so many memories of how we found those people. And one of the best things I think we did was just asking on like the initial kind of survey we sent around. Mm-hmm. was like how do you solve this problem currently and you could just you could learn so much from like the people mm-hmm. who wrote like a paragraph or two about like we use google sheets but then we tried Airtable, and then like that yeah. you'd be like i want to talk to that person and then the person would be like i don't know like i just find people in my base you're like all right you you, you might not have thought about this as much or have solved it as well and yeah so that advice just is really uh is ring, ringing true to me it was super helpful to find people that way yeah, one of my favorite actual, this is actually a sales question, not a user interview question, but I find them are both quite helpful, is what is the process for doing something? Because when someone has a, when someone's thought enough to actually create a process, first of all, processes are painful. Uh, things are easy, they don't require a process, but it, it has a little bit of, it implies that there's some friction along the path and that they've had to have thought through what is the right way to solve this problem because I've seen it with some regularity. So that actually mm-hmm. is pretty good. It's actually a great sales question and a good user interview question, but that's one of the very, very small Venn diagram of questions that fit in both camps. Yeah. And now that you uh, you mentioned launching on Monday, is the plan to just keep this up indefinitely or is the cadence going to shift a little bit now that there's a product out in the wild? Like what what's next for you all? 
yeah, you <laughs> you have to do certain things like maintain that product. You know, there's a, yeah. this last phase of, of really building for mockups has been super, super fun. I think the team is actually ready to kind of see the thing live now. I think there's like a different mm-hmm. a different world there. And then also like fundamentally, the you know, you, you start getting actual data, right? People are actually using the product or can't use the product. And so that kind of changes the, the way the interviews are done pretty significantly. So we're excited for the, for the next yeah. phase of, of research. Yeah. Do you have a plan for how that's going to work once you go live and you have, I don't know, your product analytics cooking and seeing what's what's happening? Do you anticipate keeping daily interviews or just seeing what happens? Or yeah, we're we're still in a phase where we're still we're still going through the daily interviews. I think we'll probably contract them down. You just have more input sources for for how to build things right. When you have users using the product, you can look at what they can create or mm-hmm. where they spend time. You know, we use full story, we use amplitude um, to sort of gather that information. And I'm excited just to complement the the user interview with some of the with some of the actual data on usage. So yeah. All right. So thinking back memories on the last year, are there any moments that jump out where, you know, a user interviewer, a handful of them really changed your trajectory or where you really, you know, had to wear that humility hat and let, <laughs> let let go of one of your babies or or anything that just stands out as being like wow you know this would be a a different and worse product without without having that insight yeah so there was one really big fundamental shift that we made as a company originally we basically created a, an overlay product a little bit like a um walkthrough guide, like a mm-hmm. Pendo or an AppCues or, or a WalkMe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It turns out those are really good solutions uh, that already exist in the world. And we don't really need another one of them. And I think mm-hmm. we've had a number of interviews where you would ask someone about a problem and you have this idea for, oh, we can solve it this way. And they would say, oh, let me show you how I'm solving it. And I think that was that's great for the user and for the user research, for the user interview. They're like, oh, great. I have a, a great way of, of solving this problem. But when something is good enough already, I think that's was very important for us to kind of figure out how yeah. to untangle. That doesn't tell you necessarily how to do it, what the right you know innovative solution is, but at least tells you that this maybe isn't a problem that's on fire. Right. So we, we had a bunch of those conversations. So. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, totally. I know there's a, there's a framework for that type of stuff. I forget what it is, but just that notion of, you know, it's really important to ask like, you know, how acute is this pain point? And someone might say like, you know, a scale one to 10, a nine or a 10. But if you don't follow it up with how well is that solved for you today? And they say like, you know, right. eight, <laughs> you're like, well, there's not a lot of opportunity there. Whereas if they say something's only like a six pain point, but the current solution for them is a zero, like that's actually a pretty right. wide, you know, margin yeah. to attack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, this is like a really big difference from sales because in, in sales, what you're really trying to do is highlight a pain point and then sort of explain the consequence of, of not fixing that. So for example, it's not that you, somebody takes a long time, right? That's actually not a pain point. Uh, it's a pain point because you could have spent that time doing something else that is valuable. That's what makes it painful. And so in sales, you're trying to like uncover these pain points and then exacerbate them or kind of give them mm-hmm. a sense mm-hmm. of their scale. In user research, you're actually doing that as well, but you just need to be a lot more, it's not that you're trying to convince the user interviewee that it's painful. It's right that you're trying to convince yourself that it's painful. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a good frame. I like that. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd.